Well, good morning. You may have uh, noticed that we rearranged the chairs uh, this week, and that was just to make sure you had to sit somewhere different uh, from where you usually sit. Uh, well, if you have your, uh, your Bibles, please open up with me to the Gospel of John. We're going to be uh, continuing our, our study there. And, and as you're, you're turning there, uh, in November of 1956, uh, right when uh, the tensions of the Cold War uh, were already high, Nikita Khrushchev, the leader of the, the Soviet Union, uh, raised the tension to a fever pitch. Uh, and he did this during a, a, a speech uh, to uh, NATO nations uh, in Poland. Uh, and he made these remarks uh, as he's speaking to uh, representatives of Poland and members of the NATO alliance. He says, uh, it doesn't depend upon you whether or not we exist. If you don't like us, don't accept our invitation. And don't invite us to come see you. Whether you like it or not, history is on our side. We will bury you. And that last statement was interpreted by NATO uh, and by uh, Western uh, representatives uh, to be a threat. Uh, and it sounded almost like a like a nuclear threat. That idea of we will bury you. And that's uh, when when somebody says I'm going to bury you in English, it has the the implication that I'm going to kill you and then bury you. Uh, but uh, what was not factored in was the aspect of it, what he was quoting was a Russian idiom. And when he says uh, I'm going to bury you, what he's really saying is I'm going to outlast you. Now, what he's really saying is that communism would outlast capitalism. That's what he meant by that. And uh, later on, the translator uh, for that event, you know, the Russian translator, uh, explained, he says, that Khrushchev was referring to the inevitable course of history when one society, such as feudalism, capitalism, socialism, and even communism, gives way to another. Now, he was meaning a historical evolution. If one society dies off, somebody's got to be there to bury it. So what Khrushchev said wasn't intended to be a threat. It was intended to be just a, a statement of judgment. We're going to exist after you do. Uh, and it's easy for misunderstandings to occur, especially across language barriers, especially across cultural barriers. But it's also really easy for misunderstandings to occur within a household, uh, within people who, who speak the same language, uh, who have the same cultural background. And confusion is, is very commonplace also, as we're, what we're going to be introduced to today in the Gospel of John. Confusion is commonplace when it comes to the sayings of Jesus. And oftentimes what he said would be misinterpreted, misunderstood by those who were listening. As we look at uh, this passage in the Gospel of John, uh, we're going to be, again, this first introduction to what will be an ongoing theme in a couple of weeks, we'll see when, when Jesus says to Nicodemus that you must be born again, Nicodemus is going to kind of scratch his head and say, well, how, how can a man go back into the womb a, a second time? How, how is that possible? Uh, and other places in the Gospel of John uh, where Jesus is going to say something, and it's initially misunderstood by those he's speaking to, and then it will make sense later on. Uh, and as Jesus is misunderstood, it's most commonly by those who are opposing him. And those who do not believe in him will, will be confused by him always. And those who are following him will be confused by him sometimes. 
But, but those who are his disciples and are following him, the, the, the good news is that while there's initially some confusion, his words make sense over time. And as we resume our study, we're, we're kind of dropping into a scene that we looked at initially last week. Last week we looked at John chapter 2 verses 12 to 17 where, where Jesus comes into the temple complex uh, and sees that in the court of the Gentiles there are money changers and animal vendors there uh, selling animals to be sacrificed, changing out money so that people can come and pay the temple tax. And he sees this and he sees that it is a, a desecration of the temple. What had been intended by God to be a place of worship and prayer had been turned by man into a marketplace. And so he clears out the court of the Gentiles, chasing away those who had been selling animals and changing out money. What we're going to look at this morning is verses 18 through 22. And what we're going to see here is that Jesus is going to, to be asked a question. He's going, to he's going to clear out the temple and then they're immediately going to say, what do you think you're doing? Who says you have the authority to do this? Look with me at verses 18 through 22 there in John chapter 2. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it? In three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What we will will see here that the topic of discussion that's going to be misunderstood is the identity of the temple. When Jesus says, I'll tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it, what is he speaking about? In the immediate conversation, everybody who's hearing what he's saying thinks that he's speaking of this massive temple that they are standing in there in Jerusalem. But, but years later, the disciples begin to understand what he truly meant. He wasn't speaking about the temple in Jerusalem, but his own body. And what this passage highlights is is how the natural man cannot understand the spiritual things of God. And how the believer is able to grow in our understanding as we walk with the Lord. As we uh, study God's Word and with the, the power and aid of God's Spirit, we grow in our understanding of what Jesus has done and what He has said. The significance of those things. But what we'll see this morning, what I'll, I'll try to, to answer is, why, why is it that not everybody does understand Jesus? Why is there so much confusion regarding the things that he has said and the things that he has done? And what we will see is that we can compare uh, the response of the, the Jewish leaders with the later response of the disciples. We'll, we'll see two kinds of understanding here. Now, we have much to learn from. We can learn our own hearts. What are we prone to? And we can also see the condition of, uh, of those who don't know Christ in the world around us. How are we to interact with them? What should we expect of them? How much will they be able to understand of spiritual truth? So what we will look at first is, is the limited understanding that accompanies 
unbelief. As you see there in your outline, this is seen in verses 18 through 21. And at the beginning of verse 18, those are the words that so the Jews said to him. And the way that John the Apostle uses that term, whenever he says the Jews, he's usually referring to the Jewish leaders. Uh, and the Jewish leaders would have been there in the temple complex and they would have uh, heard this, this loud commotion in the court of the Gentiles and they would have come down to see what was taking place. And then their immediate response is to say, what do you think you're doing? Who says you can do this? What authority do you have to clear out this temple? To, in essence, to overdo what they had done. Because... It was most assuredly by the direction of those Jewish leaders that the animal vendors and the money changers were operating there in the temple rather than somewhere else. And what's interesting is, is that by, by coming to Jesus, by coming and, and asking a sign from him, they're, they're acknowledging something. They're acknowledging that they had some type of expectation that he was a prophet of some kind. They're saying, hey, if if you're doing this, you're obviously demonstrating some type of authority. But now they're asking him to prove it, to prove that you're a prophet. You're in essence claiming to be that by clearing the temple. Now prove it. And what's interesting is they're kind of missing the fact that clearing that large of an area single-handedly was a sign in and of itself. For him to chase all of of the people out of the court of the Gentiles, that, that, that was pretty amazing. They're ignoring that, but... Something else to, to think about here. If they, they're coming and demanding a sign, and Jesus gives in to them. It's significant that Jesus doesn't give in to them, because if, if he did, it would have, in essence, domesticated God. It would have, in essence, said that man can come to God, make demands of him, say, God, you have to prove yourself to me. Jesus doesn't do that. He, he doesn't perform a, a sign just based upon their demands. But he, he gives a response, and, and his, his answer is veiled. It's intended to, to make sense to the disciples and hide the truth uh, from those who oppose him. Jesus speaks that way many times, and he gives this veiled answer. They say, hey, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And he answers and says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And, the, and the, the response of the Jewish leaders shows the, the method of their thinking. They're thinking purely of the, the natural, the, the physical. And they say, well, Jesus, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And it was still currently under construction. It's taken 46 years. How are you going to single-handedly rebuild something that's taken hundreds of men close to 50 years to put together? The historian Josephus says the temple was completed in A.D. 63. So this was probably around A.D. 27 or 28. So they had been working on it for 46 years, and it was going to be another 30 years or more before it was completed. And ironically, seven years after that, in A.D. 70, it was going to be all torn down by the Romans as they came and destroyed Jerusalem. What the Jewish leaders did not understand is what Jesus was really speaking about. They didn't comprehend it. They didn't even have a grid for it. They assume that Jesus is speaking only of the physical and the natural. 
And yet he was speaking about his own body. Verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. See, and this is really to, to their question. What authority do you have to do these things? Jesus says, well, I'll tear, tear down this temple and I'll, I'll rebuild a new one. And what he's really pointing to is the future resurrection. Is his future death and then conquering death on his own power. And his words were bound to be misunderstood by his opponents. They didn't have eyes of faith. They couldn't comprehend what was, what was said. See, earlier I mentioned the, the cultural barriers between the Soviet Union and, and the West. And how easy it was to misinterpret something said by the Soviet leader and assume that he was making a threat. He's, he's trying to make just a, a judgment statement. We see a little bit of that same thing here. It's not a cultural barrier, it's a spiritual one. Now those who think according to the physical and the natural cannot comprehend, they can't grasp the spiritual and the eternal, the supernatural. This is made clear in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. To put that in our, our modern vernacular, that you could say that there's a glass ceiling. And there is a, there's a, a limit to what uh, those who don't believe in Christ are able to comprehend and understand regarding spiritual things. They, they can't get past that glass ceiling. They can't see beyond the physical and the natural. And additionally, that glass ceiling is their unbelief. That's what hinders their comprehension. That's what hinders their understanding. We see this also in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds, They are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. The powerful verses. Some of you might object to to what's being said there. It seems kind of harsh, right? What do you mean that those who don't believe in Christ cannot really comprehend, that they can't understand spiritual truth? Well, that's exactly what, what it says. Uh, And in order to to see that and to demonstrate that, we don't have to look any further than this very question that the Jewish leaders are asking. So they're saying, show us a sign. But what are they actively pushing aside? The signs that Jesus has already performed. What he has already done. They are asking Jesus to demonstrate his authority, but clearly rejecting the authority that he's already proven and demonstrated. And this isn't the only occasion in the Gospels where the, the, the Jewish leaders come to Jesus and they demand a sign from him. That's in saying, hey, prove yourself. Listen to these other passages. Matthew twelve, thirty-eight and through 40. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them. Listen to Jesus' assessment. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And it's interesting there also, what does Jesus point to? Say, you're not going to get a sign on demand, but here's what I will demonstrate for you. He points to his resurrection. That's going to be the sign that will demonstrate that Jesus has all authority over life, over death, over the temple. How we are to worship. He has all authority. Again, Mark 8, Mark 8, verses 11 and 12. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Elsewhere, Luke chapter 11, verse 29, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And then later on in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And at that point in time, Jesus has already fed 5,000 people. He's already healed a crippled man. He's already done amazing, miraculous signs to demonstrate who he was. And yet they're still asking him, prove yourself. What that demonstrates, clearly and profoundly, and Jesus' accurate evaluation of them, is that they were an evil and adulterous generation. They were actively rejecting him and yet saying, prove yourself. There was no no chance of that happening. They had clearly rejected him and were coming at the very beginning of his ministry, having already, in essence, rejected him. That's what we see here. What's on display is that the life, ministry, and teaching of Jesus only makes sense through believing eyes. And a heart that's regenerated by the Holy Spirit. It's the only way that Christ will truly make sense. Those who do not believe in Jesus will never fully understand him. Sure, they'll, they'll comprehend little, little bits of what he says. They'll, they'll latch on to, to favorite sayings. You know, the, the golden rule, treat others as you want to be treated. And everyone's favorite in Matthew 7, judge not. Uh, they, they understand little, little bits and pieces of what he says. And they want to, to grab hold of things that they like that he has said. But they don't truly understand and embrace all that he has said. Because all that he has said cannot be comprehended apart from faith. The great 4th century theologian named Augustine. And he, he coined this phrase. He said, believe that you may understand. And in saying that, what, what he meant was that, that a knowledge of God was required before you can place your faith in him. And then faith is required to grow in our understanding of God. There's no true understanding of God without believing in him first. And there was another theologian during medieval times, Anselm of Canterbury. He built on the concept of Augustine. And he wrote a phrase that you might have heard, very famous, that faith-seeking understanding. What we are called to do as individuals 
this is to, to embrace this motto, to pursue the knowledge of God. And the, pursu- the pursuing that knowledge of God, the starting point of that is faith. That once we believe, then we can pursue understanding. But without faith, it is impossible to, Hebrews would say, please Him. We could add, it's impossible to truly understand Him without looking in faith to who He is. And if, that, if that's true, if, if this verse is, is saying that, that those who don't believe in Jesus can't truly understand what He has said and what He has done... How should we reach out to others? How does this truth impact then our relationship with our our co-workers, our neighbors, our family members? What it tells us is that Jesus must be the starting point of our conversations with them. Let us first tell people first and foremost about our Lord and Savior, about our King who has laid down His life for us. Let us tell them about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among men. Let us speak of His perfect life, His sacrificial death, His resurrection from the grave. That should be the focus of what we are speaking to those who do not yet know Him. That's where we are called to begin. We must bring people to Jesus, even as what we saw in John chapter 1. Those who begin to believe in Jesus, what do they do? They can't help but bring friends and family members To Jesus, I have to introduce you to the man that I have come to believe is the Messiah. That's what we are called to do. We have to see the the greatest need of of our children, our siblings, our parents, our our co-workers, our neighbors, friends, extended family members, or anybody else. And our own greatest need is not to, to turn from any particular sin... It's not to change our mind uh, according to some uh, biblical view of any particular doctrine. So what, what we need first and foremost is not to convince people of the Genesis account of creation. That's not what saves anybody. What we need to convince people of is not a biblical view of abortion or marriage and, and sexuality or any other matter that is a, a hot-button topic in our culture today. Our culture's greatest need is to see to believe in, to behold who Jesus is. That is the greatest need of humanity. Not that those other topics that I mentioned are not important. They are important. But we're speaking now of what is most important. And none of those things are going to make sense to them if they don't believe in Jesus first. We're not seeking to convert people to a set of ideas. That's not our goal. We strive to see people believe in Christ and receive eternal life. That's our ambition. That's what we want to see. The Jewish leaders came to Jesus in unbelief. They already doubted who He was. Even though they saw how He cleared the temple. Even though beyond this, they will also see many more signs and miracles. Yet they never approach Him in faith. And thus they are always confused by Him. Because that's what we see. The limited understanding of those who do not believe in Christ. And this is going to be contrasted with the growing understanding of the disciples. And we see this in the, in the final verse in this passage, verse 22. The growing understanding that accompanies faith. Look with me at that verse. When therefore he was raised from the dead, 
His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus pointed to his future resurrection as the ultimate sign that he was everything that he claimed to be. That he has all authority. And his disciples, as they're standing there, they are initially confused. And they are confused for three more years about what he said here. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and it doesn't make sense until when? Until after the resurrection. So they have questions about this for quite some time. But after Jesus was raised from the, de- from the dead, it says the disciples remembered what was said here. And the result of their remembering was a twofold faith. What did they believe in? It says they believed in the Scripture... And the word that was spoken here on this occasion by Christ. And if we look at this twofold faith, the faith in Scripture, usually when a New Testament author says, the Scripture says, when, it, when it's a definite article, they have a particular verse, a particular passage in the Old Testament in mind. And that's what we see here. The Scripture says... And while we're, we're not exactly sure what John had in mind, what it seems to be the case is that he was thinking about Psalm 16.10, which we read earlier. Psalm 16.10 says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or the, the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. See, this verse is, is quoted uh, by the apostles on two occasions in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 31, and Acts 13, verse 35. And both times, as the apostles point back to this verse, they use it in the context to demonstrate that the Old Testament taught that the Messiah had to be raised from the dead. If that speaks of the Messiah, he can't be be stuck in the grave. The Lord will not allow his Holy One, his Anointed One, the Messiah, to see corruption. So that seems to be what the disciples are remembering and now believing. They believe the promise of Psalm 16:10. And secondly, they, they believe in the they have faith in the word of Jesus. And we shouldn't fail to notice what was just thrown together in, the, in this verse. What was just thrown together was the Old Testament scriptures that were written. And they believed in them. But what else was believed in? The word of Jesus. John just put those two things together and in essence made them equal. In the same way that the Old Testament scriptures are to be believed in and embraced... What Jesus has said, what he has spoken, is also to be believed in and embraced by his disciples on par and equal with the written scriptures of the Old Testament. And their faith was sparked by remembering what they had taken in over time and accumulated in their hearts, even if they had questions about it. They, they stored it away. They hid it in their hearts and in their minds. And then it made sense later. We're all familiar with the purpose of, of a savings account, are we not? 
Well, we have savings accounts for, uh, we deposit money over time, and then uh, when that, that money is needed for something in particular, it could be uh, college tuition down the road. It could be a, a large project or a large purchase or uh, an emergency fund or a retirement account, whatever it may be. We understand what a savings account is, but does a savings account, merely just by having one, does it naturally then accumulate money? It would be nice if it did, right? You just open a savings account and then just over time, without putting anything in it, it just it added value. It would be awesome. But no, what, what's the, what do you have to do with a savings account? You have to put savings in there. You have to make deposits over time and build up the balance. That's what the disciples did here. They didn't understand at that time what Jesus had said and what the significance of it was. But he says, they said, in essence, okay, let me tuck that away. Let me deposit that. And then when I, when I need it, I'll be able to go back and make a withdrawal and understand it. And that's exactly what they did. They tucked it away. And then later on, they understood its significance. As their understanding grew, they remembered Jesus' words and exercised faith in those words. And that's what's seen here in the disciples, the growing understanding that accompanies faith. That's in essence also what we are called to do. As we read the scriptures in faith, we're making deposits into that spiritual savings account. We're putting truth in there. Not sure when we'll we'll use it, when we will exactly need it, but we will have it in there to make a withdrawal when the time comes. What happens if you have a savings account, you haven't put anything in, and then you desperately need the money, but it's not there? Overdraft. And sometimes we feel that same way spiritually when we don't have the Word of God hidden in our hearts and in our minds, and we try and uh, we, we have a, a difficult situation in life. A crisis hits, and then what do we try and withdraw from? Something that's not there. And the end result is discouragement, a loss of hope, depression, anxiety. That's why we must begin as Christians to read and remember the words of Christ. We will not grow apart from God's word. It's impossible. That's, we have to make those deposits to have something to, to withdraw from. Here's, here's another important question regarding this. So, if the, if the disciples were walking with Jesus for three years... And it still wasn't making sense. But then they they remember after he was raised from the dead. A good question to ask is why then? What was different after the resurrection than prior to the resurrection of Christ? What was different about that time? Well, number one, after Jesus was raised from the grave, the resurrected Christ spent 40 days with the apostles teaching them about the kingdom, teaching him all that they misunderstood during his life. And if I could go back and pick any time, I think I'd want to go to that Bible class. Let me be with Jesus for that 40-day uh, crash course. Uh, at the end of the 40 days, he, he ascended into heaven, and then 10 days later, what's known as the Day of Pentecost. And what's significant about the Day of Pentecost is the Spirit, which was promised by Jesus, came and indwelled the apostles and has indwelled every believer since that day forward. That was the beginning of the church age. And it's important to remember 
what Jesus is going to say a little bit later on. You're like, how do I remember what I haven't read yet? Well, we'll get there. Later on in the Gospel of John, Jesus is going to, to explain that it's good for him to depart. And the disciples are like, what? How is it good for Jesus to go? He said, well, it's good for me to go because I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send the Spirit to you. And in explaining the ministry of the Holy Spirit, listen to what Jesus says in John 14, 26. Jesus is going to make known to the disciples something that we now call the doctrine of illumination. Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name... He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So this is something that you don't pick up necessarily in the first reading of the Gospel of John. But we do pick it up in the second reading because, oh wait, I know the Spirit brings remembrance. And now here we see the disciples doing what? Remembering. And what we have is a foreshadowing of the Spirit's ministry as it was promised by Jesus. Now John 14 was a, was a promise specifically given to the apostles. We don't have that same promise. This is, it's in the upper, upper room and he's speaking to a particular group of men. But, but there are other places in the New Testament that teach us, that show us that the Spirit dwelling within us is also able to teach us as well. Listen to these verses. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 17 and 18. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. That's what... The Spirit does within the hearts and minds of the believer. It opens our hearts. It helps us to understand what He has said and all that He has given to us in Christ. Additionally, 1 John 2.20 says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Then verse 27 in that same chapter, But the anointing that you have received from Him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So this this doctrine of illumination, the, the Holy Spirit who dwells within believers teaching us and guiding us, that suddenly expands our understanding of our own Christian growth and our own Christian maturity, does it not? Because now what we've talked about so far is just the the natural. Read the Bible, meditate on it, pray, remember what it says. That's the natural side. That's just putting something into the savings account. And now Jesus, we, we see that the Holy Spirit at work. Now suddenly the natural is accompanied by the supernatural. Now it's, uh, you read the word and the Spirit will bring it to remembrance at the appropriate time. That savings account just got upgraded to a mutual fund. Now now there's compounding interest. Now now there's things that are greater than what you could normally put in because your understanding grows as you read the word, then you recall it later and you're able to apply it in the situation that is appropriate. That's what we see regarding the Christian life. That it is both natural and supernatural. Supernatural. 
We're called to put some effort and energy in, read the word, remember it, be able to recall it, hide it in your heart and mind, and then the supernatural work of the Spirit will help to bring those things to remembrance and help you to apply it to your lives. That is what we see. The Spirit residing within us and teaching us turns out, turns that savings account into a mutual fund. In our growth as Christians, our sanctification both, is both natural and supernatural. But within this doctrine of illumination, it's, it's been misunderstood. So I would offer some, uh, some fences to kind of hem it in, so some, some guidelines to help us to uh, appropriate it correctly. And I would say, say these, uh, these six limitations, uh, which I got from a, a systematic theology book, are really helpful. Number one, that illumination the Spirit guiding and teaching believers, it does not function apart from God's Word. It's not going to lead you contrary to God's Word or do something separate from God's Holy Word. Secondly, illumination does not guarantee complete doctrinal agreement because who's still involved? We are. And we are prone to error. We're prone to sin. We still have a little bit of that, that old way of thinking mixed in with our lives, and it's difficult to, to separate that out. So illumination does not guarantee complete doctrinal agreement. Third, illumination does not necessarily mean that everything about God is knowable. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to God. There are certain truths, certain things that God says, those are only for me, but what I've given to you, you can understand that. Fourth, illumination does not mean that human teachers are unnecessary. It doesn't mean that uh, you just go off by yourself in the wilderness and you will naturally come to all of the right conclusions. No, a lone ranger is a dead ranger. Uh, and we, we are called to still be in community. And the, and the Lord has established His church and elders and pastors to teach and equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that the whole church can be built up So it doesn't mean that human teachers are unnecessary. Fifth, illumination is not a substitute for personal Bible study. It doesn't mean, hey, I can can no longer look at the Bible and God's just going to impart truth to me supernaturally. It's just going to spark that. No, it's not apart from the Word. It's intimately connected to the Word. And it's not a substitute for personal Bible study. And then, number six, illumination is not a one-time experience not something that that happens one time and then immediately you know everything there is to know about christian theology and life it's not how it works paul told his disciple in the faith who'd walked with him for many many years who was a pastor second timothy 2 15 work diligently to present yourself as a workman who's unashamed accurately handling the word of truth. There's an ongoing energy and discipline of studying the Word, and through that God will teach His people. So, bringing all of this together, we could summarize it as this. As the people of God study the Word of God, the Spirit of God teaches them. That's what we see. Uh, And that for the believer, We will grow in our understanding of who Jesus is and all that he has said and done as we exercise faith. For the unbeliever, those who approach without faith, it's never going to make sense. That's what this verse or this 
this passage teaches us about ourselves. So it teaches us about the world around us, the limited understanding of unbelief and the growing understanding of faith. But more importantly, it, it's great that this passage teaches us about us, but what does it teach us about Christ? What does it show us about Him? About who He is? We've seen these, these two kinds of understanding. And like I, I mentioned earlier, we're kind of parachuting down into the middle of a scene here. But let, let's, let's zoom back out and take a look at what's really happening in chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. Jesus has come to the temple. Beginning of his ministry. This is his first big act. And in essence, what he, what he has said last week in verses 12 through 17 is that I have the authority to clear out the temple. That's what, he, that's what he proclaimed. And then this week, what he's really saying, what he's really saying in this passage is that he now replaces the temple. You can tear this one down and I'll rebuild it. I'll rebuild a new one. He has the authority to clear it and then he has the authority to replace it. And he himself is that replacement. And, and what's amazing and as we, as we step back a little bit, let's put ourselves in the sandals of the, of the disciples. They would have been there with Jesus in the temple. What would it have been like? Well, if we, if we approach this massive temple complex uh, in Jerusalem, which when I say massive, maybe an understatement, the temple complex at this point in time was one-sixth of the entire size of Jerusalem. Huge. And as we approached the temple, we would have approached from the south. We would have come to a long set of stairs, 200 feet wide. And on our left would have been what's known as the double gate. Two tunnels that would have gone up into the court of the Gentiles. And on our right would be what's called the triple gate. Because there's three tunnels that go up uh, into the court of the Gentiles. So there would be this, this stairway that's 200 feet wide that we would ascend very slowly and worshipfully to help us understand that we're we're approaching the meeting place between God and man. But towering above these stairs would be what's known as the the royal stoa. Okay, this uh, this massive portico that is close to a thousand feet wide. So the, these massive stairs, two hundred feet wide, but beyond that, a thousand feet of this massive structure. It's a thousand feet wide. It was over a hundred feet above street level. And it was four layers of uh, columns. Each row of columns had 40 across that, that distance. And inside that portico is where the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish leaders, would have been meeting. And if we had walked through those tunnels, we would have been passing underneath that massive portico. We would have come out into the court of the Gentiles where we would have seen Jesus clear out the animal vendors and the money changers. And as I mentioned, the Sanhedrin, which would have been meeting in that, that area that we passed through, they would have come down and said, who are you? What are you doing? And Jesus says, just tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it. 
hair down. And, and what's amazing is for the thousand years before this, that temple represented the dwelling place of God. That was where the Jews came to meet with the God that they worshipped. They came to meet with Yahweh. And then Jesus is flippantly saying, well, just tear, tear this down. What's the implication of that? Just tear this down. I'll, re, I'll replace it. I'll build a new one. And it says that he was speaking of the temple of his body. See, where in the Old Testament, the meeting place between God and man was this temple in Jerusalem. But now with Christ, where is the meeting place between God and man? It's no longer a physical location in the Middle East. It's in a person. It's in Christ. Accessible to all. That's what we are called to believe. Called to behold. Called to embrace. That's what we are called to proclaim. That if people want to meet God, if they want to know their Creator, they are to go through Jesus. Is that not amazing? That, that's the, the big point of what we see here. That's only going to be understood through eyes of faith. It's never going to be understood by eyes of unbelief. Unbelief hardens the heart, darkens the mind. And so now our goal, as we, as we depart from here, as you, as you meditate upon this, is to help, Je- help others see Jesus in that way. Again, not pushing our own agenda of think like me, but behold the Savior that I have beheld, who is worthy of our worship, adoration, and praise. Amen? Let's pray. Glorious, glorious God. Yours is the kingdom and the power. You are the creator of all things. We are but your creatures. And Lord, where in times past we would have had to to travel to Jerusalem to meet with you. To be in your presence as your glory resided there in the temple in Jerusalem. But Lord, now we, we thank you. We praise you. We are awed by your wisdom, your grace, your mercy to extend yourself to us. That you became flesh and dwelled among us. Lord, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus. We thank you for recording who he was and what he did in the words of your scriptures. Lord, I pray that you would, you would grant to us eyes of faith. Lord, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. Open our eyes that we may see and behold Jesus for all that he is. Lord, open our eyes so that we might see those around us. That we might behold their spiritual blindness. That we might be broken hearted, grieved by it. 
Lord, may we long to see them come to have the scales of their eyes removed, the blindness taken away, that they might see and behold Jesus, even as we do. Lord, give us boldness, give us wisdom, give us grace to speak well and to speak rightly of our Savior, who is now the meeting point between God and man. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We worship you for who you are, for what you have done. We thank you also for sending your spirit to dwell within us, to teach us, to guide us. May you teach us and guide us, mold us and shape us to be more and more like you each and every day. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name.